My search for black identity was something that I actually enjoyed until I started noticing that there is a level of animosity that comes with it. It is a celebration of being black and also in a rejection of white. Today, I sit down with Adam Coleman, author of Black Victim to Black Victor, identifying the ideologies, behavioral patterns, and cultural norms that encourage a victimhood complex. Human existence is filled with struggle. It's just a matter of, do you take that struggle and hold on to it as some sort of weapon to levy out the rest of society? Or do you use that struggle as a reason to overcome it? We discuss problems in the American education system, the importance of family planning in an age of single parenthood, and the power of what Coleman calls wrong speak. The home is the first government we should be worried about. And the problem is that for a lot of people, it's highly dysfunctional, and then they look elsewhere for the solution. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelly. Adam Coleman, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thank you for having me. Adam, I've been reading your book, and I have to tell you, um, there are many, many places in there where I find myself thinking about, frankly, some of my own childhood, although you know, not in the exact same terms. I mean, this is a book that's clearly not just for black Americans. I think I actually learned a lot here. Yeah. Um, just t tell me a little bit about the background of what, why you came up with this. Well, the book idea basically started after George Floyd. The concept of the book originally was just a way for me to talk about race because it was during, obviously, you know, the 2020 riots and, you know, the discussion about race in America and what it's like to be a black man in America as well. And I just didn't like the narratives that were coming out. Um, and, and also, like, I didn't like the narratives um, from people I generally agreed with. You know, their approach to explaining things, uh, being completely dismissive about certain things. And so the book was a way for me to express myself uh, in a time where I felt like I couldn't express myself. I was just a regular guy working an IT job. Um, and I didn't even feel like I could go on social media and talk about it in a way that I really wanted to talk about it, um, wh which is a way of compassion, ultimately. Um, you know, there was obviously frustration for me, but the way the book turned out was very compassionate, understanding, but being critical as well. Um, and also, I wanted to write the book starting years prior because I wanted to leave a legacy for my son. Mm. That was really important for me. So it's interesting that you focus on family yeah. because, you know, Family, it's, it seems like family is really the bedrock of society. And I think when you look at the various studies that have been done on you know, fa families with a father and a mother in the, in the household, basically kids tend to do really well. And that's across race, across social strata, across everything. This is the one thing that almost everybody agrees on. And, and you highlight this, actually. Right. Yeah. Um... And these are like obvious statistics, and I think a lot of people know. But I think often what happens is, especially from the political right, they use numbers and stats, but there's no human element to it. So I just wanted to use my story, you know, growing up in a single parent home, what it was like to not be around my father, um, how I felt inadequate as a man because I didn't grow up around a man. And then I'm left to raise my son and teach him how to be what I wasn't. And I think all of that kind of impacts so many people. And so, like you said, 
the book isn't, it uses black Americans as a way to start the conversation, but we have so much more in common, uh, and it goes cross, you know, race, cross cultures, you know, family is extremely important. So let's talk a little bit about your upbringing. I'd love to, I'd love to hear more. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> there's, so, there's so many different places to start from because um, my life has been all over the place. Uh, you know, before the age 18, I lived in four states. Uh, we moved around a lot within those areas. Um, I was homeless a couple times as a kid. Um, one of the times we were staying with a family member, things weren't working out, we left. We were looking for a place to stay and going from hotel to hotel. Um, at one point, um, a woman who was basically a stranger had a trailer with a room and she let us stay there for about a month or so, if I remember correctly. So there were a lot of struggles, um, and that was the first time we were homeless. Um, and the second time we were homeless, we ended up staying at a homeless shelter. Um, and my mother was left to basically do it by herself and take care of us. Um, I had my personal struggles as well as a kid um, and, and stemmed into my adulthood, depression, um, feeling inadequate, uh, lacking self-esteem, and um, just truly just not fully like believing in myself. And at times taking that victim mentality along with me. And I, I kind of wondered how would my life have uh, changed in a different direction if my father was there for me? And what, what things did I actually miss out on? A, a lot of those answers kind of came later in my life with my son because I didn't want to be my father, you know? Um, and I started to tap into what felt natural and saw how beneficial I was for my son and saw how much more well-adjusted he is compared to how I was. Why did you have to seek shelter in the ways you did and so forth? Um, the, the first time was because um, my mother and, and us, we didn't get along with my, my aunt who had passed away later on. Um, we just simply didn't get along with her. My mother was going to school um, for nursing and you know, she'd rather figure something else out than leave her kids in that environment. Um, and I don't blame her. Um, so we were kind of left to our devices. Um, <clears throat> my father was always in a different state. My father was always married, just never to my mother. And, you know, he paid child support, and that was the extent of it. Um, I would see him randomly throughout my life. Um, I get maybe like one or two phone calls a year, if that. So he was basically a stranger in my life, to be honest with you. Let me just uh, read this quote you're making me think of. You were talking about this victim mentality. You wrote, like many lost children, and I wanted you to talk about what you mean by that exactly. I spent decades feeling sorry for myself and wearing victimhood for societal warmth. Pity becomes the lost child's currency, and we can never collect enough of it. That struck me yeah. right in the heart. Tell, so w what do you mean here? Um, well, the, the concept of a lost child um, is relating to I, me seeing the father as the purpose compass for the children, especially for boys. Um, it's incredibly important for men to have some sort of purpose. Without purpose, we're lost. Um, and I, I think the father figure provides something a little bit different for their daughters as well. 
especially like relationship and, and things of that nature. But for young men, um, we become lost without a purpose. We become lost without direction. Um, and we grab a hold of anything that we can, feeling like we're heading in that, that right, that right uh, area. But we're, you know, we're just guessing. We're lost. We need some guidance from someone who actually knows. And that's what our father is supposed to be. You know, I barely graduated high school, you know. Uh, and not because I'm stupid, but because I just didn't know what I was doing. I struggled. I just struggled in, in almost every area of my life. And it just translated into my adulthood, and I started pitying myself. Because of all the failures, and it looks like everybody else is doing much better than I am, and I'm wondering why. Why is that the case? Um, you know, and it's, it's very interesting, because this uh, we're getting into this a concept of victim, victim mentality, right? And you know, it's surprising how easily someone could get into that mindset. And something you cover in the book is that this is something that in our society is being encouraged. Right. And that this creates huge problems for people. Right. It, it is being encouraged. Uh, it, shows it's what, it shows itself in different ways, uh, depending on what topic. Um, even in politics, doesn't matter what side you're on. There's a little bit of victim mentality that is being preached. You know, if you're on the left, you're being told that there's a system of oppression and, and it's stopping you from excelling. On the right, they tell you that the government is oppressing you and, you know, and maybe in some cases they're, they're kind of right. And actually, both sides are kind of right in, to some degree. Um, but I think it's the exaggeration. Um, and even if it's true, what's the solution? And that's part of the problem is because they don't provide solutions. It's, the purpose isn't to give you one other than to maybe put it onto somebody else. And that's where the savior comes in. Um, so, you know, for the right, Donald Trump is the savior of society. He's going to help us when they're always going to be disappointed because he's not. Nobody is. And that's the whole point. Uh, on the left, you know, they say everybody is the savior of the poor and, and disenfranchised. And we have to be allies with them. Well, your ally is not going to help you either. You know, in many cases, your ally is just using you to prop themselves up to take credit for things that they shouldn't take credit for. So I just see a society of victims and saviors, and it's this relationship that's poisonous um, and generally benefits one side. And sometimes people have good intentions who think that the savior approach is the right approach, and it isn't. You say something, I think, pretty controversial. And you say, basically, if you're a black American, you have already won. That's absolutely not what we hear, ever. I say they've won in the greatest scheme of the world. Actually, the Americans are the 1% of the world, to be honest with you. Uh, we have great opportunities here. Um, you know, even for someone like myself, you know, it was a struggle, but I feel like I found some success. And I think everybody has different measurements of success. Uh, for me, success is sustainability, not having to rely off of you know, someone giving me a helping hand or anything like that. I think that's, that's an achievable mark for most people, and especially black Americans in this country. Um, and I, I do believe that if black Americans want to uplift themselves, they're more than capable of doing so. Black Wall Street um, is, a, is a perfect example of economic success. Uh, even during times of uh, racist laws like Jim Crow. Um, you had bus companies in the, in the Jim Crow South 
that were the primary bus companies. You had people, um, black Americans, who were being hired by other white Americans over everybody else to do skilled labor. And, and they were able to provide for their families. Um, so you had all different types of economic means that were happening for black Americans. They weren't all living in shacks in the deep south. Uh, for a lot of them, they owned property. Um, they were farmers you know, in agriculture. So there, there was a ton of different ways that they were showing um, progress and success. And many of them migrated to different parts of the country, hence why you have a lot of uh, black Americans who would move to Chicago for certain industry, Los Angeles and, and other parts of California for other types of industries. Um, Brooklyn, New York uh, is another example. So there, there's been all different types of signs to show that um, when there are opportunities for black Americans to take advantage of, they've gone for it and they've picked up and, and traveled to different areas to take advantage of these things. Um, and that shows to me that Black Americans have a whole history of overcoming obstacles and looking for success elsewhere. And let's say they're right. There's systemic oppression and all these things, but we should be able to do things in spite of, right? Or for example, let's say you're right, there is systemic oppression. It doesn't help if you have multiple children with multiple women and your family isn't intact, right? If you look at the economics of things, um, you know, and, and we look at household income, 70% of children are growing up in single-parent homes, or I should say they're being born in sing into single-parent homes. Two incomes are better than one. There's your math right there. I think that helps a lot for black Americans. There's so many different ways that um, we can actually improve and just doing, uh, uh, doing things on our own and, and just taking control of what we can actually take control. There's so much big picture, idealistic, things that we're being told to, to reach up for and grab a hold of. And, it, and it's just unrealistic, you know, when we can easily say that proper family planning is half of the solution to success in life. Anybody can do that. It doesn't matter your skin color. So um, to kind of go back to what you were originally saying, why are we the 1%? We're 1% because we have far more opportunities in America than just about any other country, including other, um, other Western countries as well. And so it's just a matter of, do you believe that you can actually achieve those things or not? You know, some people have much better opportunities. This is what's always said, right? Some yeah. people are just offered, you know, everything is, everything is easy and everything is offered on a silver platter. What do you mean everyone has the same, this great 1% opportunity, right? Yeah, I mean, well, everybody has a struggle. Even wealthy people have a struggle, right? I mean, there are wealthy people who overdose on drugs because they have a struggle. You know, human existence is filled with struggle. It's just a matter of, do you take that struggle and hold on to it as some sort of um, weapon to, to levy out the rest of society? Or do you use that struggle as a reason to overcome it, right? And, and for me, all those things I was saying that I went through in my childhood, I use those things as like, look how far I've come, right? Instead of saying, look what was done to me. And I, I think that we need to preach more of victorhood, right? If we're talking about uh, black Americans and historically speaking, I see like, look what we were able to overcome. 
you know, look at all the achievements that we were able to move past. And I think that's something that's worth celebrating. Doesn't mean that that's it. Doesn't mean that there, is, there aren't bad things, there aren't, there aren't things that we should fight for. You know, you'll never have a perfect society. Uh, doesn't mean that you shouldn't fight for those things. But to pretend that uh, things are exactly the same, nothing has ever changed, and that's what comes from a lot of the radical left uh, activists who assimilate any sort of atrocity, any sort of bad outcome as being the same as uh, what has happened long ago. Um, there are dishonest people, and, and many times there are people who are just trying to take advantage. They're trying to gain uh, popularity, gain money, um, and they're just dishonest actors who don't actually care about other people. And that's one thing that became glaringly obvious during 2020. Mm. Um, even Black Lives Matter, the top level organization, wasn't even supporting its own organization from below as they were complaining about not receiving any funding to actually do some activism. And, and so I, I just find, uh, you know, I don't like to use the word grift, but I just find that there's a lot of people who just take advantage of moments, opportunities that arise that, um, and they're, they're disingenuous, dishonest people. They don't really actually care about people. Um, and the number one way you can tell that someone doesn't care about them is because they're unwilling to tell the truth, right? When new information comes out, you levy that truth and still progress forward. And what I find is that they ignore the truth. They dismiss it. They excuse you know, other things, and they keep moving forward towards their objective. And their objective tends to be make more money. You know, and I remember you talking about you kind of succumbing to some kind of, quote, pro-black rhetoric, mm -hmm. right? When I'm searching for myself and trying to figure out myself, not always growing up around black people, um, I was in mixed neighborhoods. I was the only black kid. You know, I've been in, in a whole bunch of different areas. But, you know, you're searching for identity. And there's a plethora of people who want to help you to find your black identity, mm. right? And on its surface, it's not a bad thing. You know, I think finding identity in anything it can be fine. And so my search for black identity um, was something that I actually enjoyed until I started noticing that there is a level of animosity that comes with it that's being preached. Um, it is a celebration of being black and also in a rejection of white or whiteness or things of that nature. Uh, that's when I actually, came, this was years ago, I came across the uh, racism is power plus privilege and not just the you know, hatred against someone else because of their race. Um, you know, so I started coming across these different areas of kind of like the, and I say pro-black pro in, in like a loose way because it's hard to define. Um, but I started coming across those things, and I started to believe it, um, the, the animosity part. But it was, it was very short-lived, because I look around me, and I was like, wait a minute. I know this person. I know all these people who don't look like me, who've done tremendous things for my life, not because I was black, but because they just like me. Um, and I've done the same for other people. My son is mixed race. Like, how does this? How does this jive with the reality of things? Are things that simple? As that, is this just this dichotomy of uh, good versus evil, black versus white? And it, it just seemed over, oversimplified. Um, 
and when you start asking questions, typically you, f you start realizing that it's all manipulative. Um, it's, <clears throat> it's a way to gain power uh, for a lot of these people. Uh, they, even in a small segment, there's small segment of notoriety um, of notable people, and they thrive on that. They really do thrive on it. And I don't believe that they believe all the things that they're saying, because they contradict themselves all the time. And and when it comes to certain ideologies, when they have a framework and they're constantly contradictive, you know, there's a lot of hypocrisy that's involved. You start you start saying like, this doesn't make any sense for me, um, at least for me. Some people just keep going forward with it and just turn a blind eye because they think that the bigger picture of being pro-black and, and all these things is, is much more beneficial. But um, I, I decided to go my own way and just be myself. You know, I have no shame about being black. I know who I am. I know where I'm from. Um, you know, there's no hatred of self. You know, the, these are all shaming tactics that people try to to levy against you when you don't conform. Um, but I think being black can come in different ways. And, and I think it's a shame that we try to tell people that there's only one way to be it. So it's interesting. I've been following you for a while. And uh, I, I hadn't fully put together that you view yourself as a black conservative, because you're alluding to this as, as you're speaking here. You have this piece recently, I hate being in the black conservative box. Right, and just what you were just saying made me think of that. And one of the people that's been most influential in my life over the last five years has been Thomas Sowell, mm -hmm. right? Who's written so many books in such an incredibly helpful way to understand the world for anybody, right? I didn't know about him until you know five, six, seven years ago, if you can believe that. No. But, but that's because he was in the box, you know. That that that's what I think. What are your thoughts here? Yeah. No, I agree with you. I agree with you. Um, I don't think it's a conservative idea to say that boys should be with their fathers or that fathers should be in the home with both their children or that marriage is a good institution to raise a family. Democrats, Republicans, conservative liberals, they all get married. Um, I, and so when I advocate for these things, and, and that's my primary advocacy, um, I don't see it as a conservative idea, but unfortunately that's what it is. But then to add on top of that, I have melanin in my skin, so now it's a black conservative idea, right? Because I must be always talking about the black family. And granted, like I wrote a book called Black Victim and Black Victor, so at times I do talk about race when it's necessary, but most of the time I, I try not to because it's a human issue and it's an American issue. You know, the United States is number one in single parenthood in the world. And it's becoming a bigger and bigger problem. It's affecting our society in different ways. So those things just get categorized into black conservative thought or black conservative this. You know, even when I, when I meet other conservatives, black or white, they say, uh, you see, I wrote a book to say, Thomas Sowell, or do you know this person? You must like Candace Owens, right? Um, I had one person who gave me a genuine compliment about my book, that, and he read it, and he compared me to someone who wasn't black. He compared me to a white author that he knew, and he said, you, you really, he really enjoyed the book. 
And it's not to say, like, I want to be compared to white people. Uh, it's just that I want to be compared to the best, mm. right? And I don't take being compared to Thomas Sowell, if someone wants to compare it to Thomas Sowell as an insult, I enjoy him. And I think he's a really good author and a really good thinker. But it's, it's when I'm not being compared to everybody. You know, I think Thomas Sowell is one of the greats, regardless of skin color, not just because he's black. And, and I think there's, there's that box that, that kind of gets constructed for us. Uh, and, I, and also, it's a, it was a little bit of a complaint because there are other conservatives who are black, who are more known than I am, who speak recklessly, right? And they say things that, in general, I agree with, but I don't like their approach. You know, I don't, I don't always think that they're being genuine. But yet, when they say it, I'm also in that box. So I must believe what they're saying, because their voice always gets heard. Mm -hmm. My voice isn't as big. And so my voice is kind of always competing with theirs and their thoughts. Now I have to defend myself against what they say, right? Because the box is small. I like to joke and say there's only 10 of us. but like. There's, it's a small box with a limited amount of people, and especially when it comes to people who are like trying to speak out like myself, there's not a lot of us. And it always seems to be that we are, we are having to measure ourselves against each other within this box. And when I'm advocating for meritocracy, I can't get meritocracy because I'm in that black conservative box. I can't have my ideas seen as just, that's a good idea. Not that's a good conservative idea, or that's a good black conservative idea. It's just a good idea. Does it make sense? And I think that you know there are a lot of boxes. You know, I'm, I'm kind of complaining. There are a lot of boxes that exist in our society, and I even stated like I don't like any of these boxes, right? I think I think things can show up in different ways, and we don't need all these boxes all the time. Sometimes it's good to kind of categorize things in, in generalities when it needs to be, but at times it really doesn't. I would hate to think that my successes that have come in the past couple of years have only been because I am black or that I'm a black conservative. I would hope that's because I measure up against other people as well as black conservatives that I have what it takes to uh, you know, write for the New York Post and. And, uh, and other publications because I'm a good writer, not that I'm a good black writer or a black conservative writer. Yeah, so, I mean, these boxes, I mean, this, this one specifically, I can think of other boxes like um, the I'm not virulently against Trump box, for example, yeah. right, which was, a, which was a huge one that was used, are used to basically label and discredit and just dismiss a whole, suite of people or ideas or whatever. It's very convenient. And I'll, I'll go back to Thomas Sowell because I keep thinking about this. You know, the idea that you should look at incentive structures instead of goals. It's just such a beautiful, it's a sublime idea. The moment you grasp it, you view the world differently. This is, this is one of the things, this is what I learned. You know, one of the things I learned. What a beautiful idea. Why, why couldn't I have gotten that idea, you know, as a kid, right? Because of this you know beautiful realm of thought but no it was put in a box it was isolated that's how i see it right um well i, I feel like we got to break through these boxes absolutely no i think um especially like twitter spaces has been a, 
a profound place to have conversations with people and have people come in and listen to what you have to say. Um, you know, I've had tough conversations with people who would be within my box. Um, and we just don't agree on certain things and other things we do. And it's the, you know, and there's been plenty of times that I've learned a lot from other people that I thought that, you know, I knew the answer and they, they gave a different perspective and it made me question myself. So the Twitter files showing the suppression of voices, uh, all the censorship, and I just imagine how much, how much information we were withheld from, how many very intelligent people, you know, even if they're people I don't necessarily agree with, but they gave like a different voice to it, a different narrative. Um, we shouldn't be afraid to hear a different voice, you know? If they're so wrong, then we should be able to use that, that information and challenge what we believe, and then we can discard the bad information. But if we only get one viewpoint or one side or however you want to say it, how do we, how do we actually grow? And so, for example, I am wholly pro-life, and I don't think it would be right for me to ban um, pro-choice discussion or advocating for abortions, you know, if I have that power. Because if I lose that power, then they can come after me. And so that's mostly why I'm free speech, is because there's a lot of power in speech, and there's even more power in controlling speech. And so to level the playing field, we all get to talk, right? And just because Jack Dorsey leaves and Elon eventually comes in doesn't mean that, well, we should now favor a different side and start banning them in revenge. You know, I keep hearing Bob Woodson speaking in my ear, you know, when white people were at their worst, black people are at their best, right? And he, it's just, it was such a powerful line. I've never forgotten it, but this speaks to what you were talking about, about Black Wall Street, you know, during Jim Crow, mm -hmm. right? And some of these realities. And maybe just, you know, I, I just think that this is something not a lot of people know about or not enough people know about. I certainly didn't prior to learning this from, from Bob, but um, you know, it also speaks to the, some of this potential that you're talking about that's unrealized, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And there's no guarantees when it comes to anything, but um, I, this is why school choice is incredibly important to me as well. I think if you're in that much of a, a, a bad situation educationally for your children, you should have the opportunity to go elsewhere. We have choice in just about everything else in life. But for many people, they don't have the choice to go to a different school. And, and the people who do have the choice to go to a different school, they have the economic means to do it. And why should your education be wholly dependent on your economics? The whole point of the public school system was to give a proper education no matter what economic status you're in. That is a failure of the educational system. How can you have progress if kids aren't being educated properly. And you know, we live in very specific areas. You know, 60% of black Americans live in 10 states. And you can name those states based on the cities. And we can go through the list of those cities and how well are those cities actually doing. You know, they like to blame where they're not getting enough money. Well, that's actually not true for most of them. You know, Detroit, for example, gets more money per pupil than any other city within the state. It's not, it's not a financial problem as far as receiving money. It's a corruption issue. And you can't blame this on race because the entire city 
is, you know, people in power and every level, they're all black. So what does it actually mean then? They're corrupt. There's just so much corruption that's happening. And the children who are able to get some sort of education, um, they're getting educated through school choice. They're getting educated through busing into other areas because that's how bad things are. Well, and, and potentially ideological as well. We're going to use this specific method of education. I've been hearing a lot about this as well. Yeah. That's definitely part of it for sure. Uh, there's a teacher's union that, you know, that there's that aspect to it. Uh, but there's just so much bureaucracy that I play. And, it, and, and all it does is hurt the kids in the end. Um, and they leave school, can't read. Um, even though they have a high school diploma, they're not prepared to go to college. Um, I, and, and I might be butchering this, but I remember hearing a report talking about historically black colleges, how they have to catch kids up in order to, to be at a certain level when they come into, into college. And that's because they're being undereducated in the areas that they're, they're growing up in. So, you know, like I'm saying, kids all the time graduate high school, they can't read. It happens all the time in this country. And much of the problems um, will only be exacerbated by the government. And what I'm trying to tell people is that they can change things themselves. Or if anything, if they need government, they need to look at local government more and less at the federal level. <clears throat> and I don't think it's just black, black Americans or black community that this is happening to. I think it's happening all over the country where they turn on CNN for solutions rather than going to their local boards, right? Rather than going to their school board to you know, figure out how we can improve things at our school or, or city council meetings. You know, they're turning on the television to find out who to vote for for Senate. That guy's not gonna fix your problem locally. And locally is how you address a lot of the issues that are going on. I think there is power when it comes to um, resolving issues. You know, there's power in acknowledging your issues too. If I'm the one who caused the problem, that means I'm the one who can fix it, right? And so why not grab a hold of that? And, and everything for me starts at, at home, you know, the family planning aspect. And I, I didn't follow these things when I was younger. You know, I had my son out of wedlock. And so I'm in a constant struggle to catch up, to always be on top of my son, and I'll never be on top of my son because he doesn't live with me, you know? And no matter how much I care, it's going to be always be a, a difficult situation to be in. And what I'm advocating for people is to not put yourself in that situation. There are lots of good men out there who care about their children, but maybe they're approaching family in a different way. And same thing with women. They're approaching family in a different way. They're not planning properly they're they're going off of their feelings and you know and oops we have a kid now um, but I really wish people would look at the person they're about to have sex with as the person who could potentially be the mother or the father of the children and that would change how they view you know their relationships moving forward the problem is that we don't um, I think it becomes all about us and, and all about the parent how, how we feel and we can change those things. We can change our mindset. We can change our approach. And we can do all that without the government. The home is the first government we should be worried about. Um, the problem is that for a lot of people, it's, it's highly dysfunctional. And then they look elsewhere for the solution. 
you talk about the in the black community the hypersexualization of women. Mm -hmm. um, it's almost like are you even allowed to talk about that? I'm I'm kind of I'm kind of asking myself, but. But so explain to me what, what, what that is. What do you mean is happening there? And do you also talk about, you know, women in the black community almost looking like men as enemies? Yeah. And so like the, the, the juxtaposition of this seems, you know, like a very difficult set of hurdles to overcome. Yeah, it's, it's, very, it's very complicated. Um, and obviously when I'm saying these things, I'm saying it kind of uh, in general, right? and not necessarily every black woman or anything like that, but it exists. It is a mindset that looks at men as optional um, and sees them basically as um, ways to get pleasure and ways to procreate. Anything after that is a bonus, and if he doesn't fulfill those things, they can discard him. It's a very like a misandric way of approaching things. And the reality is that most black people date black people, they procreate with black people. You know, interracial relationships are actually uh, relatively rare. And so that means that for black, from a black male perspective, we have to date a lot of women who don't like us. And it, and it sounds strange to say that, but they don't actually like us, right? They might need us for something in particular, but do they actually like us? Do they actually love us, right? And I think for a lot of black men, they pedestalize women. Uh, they, pe they pedestalize women in a sexual way as well, um, where it's an achievement to have sex with as many as you can. Um, and they don't actually appreciate what women have to offer besides that. Um, so it's a weird dynamic of, of putting women up top, but it's only up top for a moment. Um, and, and then they move on to the next. And I think it's that kind of cycle that happens in between, you know, and, it, and it's, it's actually a culture of acceptability that this exists, you know? Um, I don't need a man, I could do it all by myself, men are trash. It's a celebration of singlehood, celebration of women first, you know, we're smarter, better, this whole thing, and then disparaging men along the way um, and in general, that's my issue when it comes to modern feminism. You know, it's female empowerment uh, by means of discarding men or slandering men. And I don't think that's real empowerment. So I think that exists a lot within the, within, um, the black community in, in general because it's promoted. It's perfectly fine. And then what makes it worse is that we're not allowed to shame it. And, and that's the component of, of kind of like regulating what's actually going on. And so if we can't shame it, things are wrong. We could barely even talk about it. Or we're, we're over here like, I don't even know if I can talk about this. We can't even really talk about it, discuss it. Like, hey, does it seem right that we say men, is, men are trash? Does it seem right that we're uh, talking so negatively publicly about men? Um, not, not even a critical way, you can criticize anybody, but in a way where you dismiss them, are we helping things? And we're not allowed to ask these questions without repercussions, because then it becomes, if I'm completely honest with you, I am black and you are white, and I'm not allowed to talk about these things outside the group. It's a form of an ideology that's infected 
the culture. Well, this is, you're just reminding me of something else you wrote, I think, and you said that it's, uh, that a kind of Marxist ideology has created a frontline offense mm -hmm. right within the home, if right. I recall. Um, so tell me, how does that, wh where, how does this fit in to what you're talking about? So, um, you know, it's interesting when, when we talk about the, the destruction of family, it's, it's harsh term to use, but the destruction of the black family. They always talk about, you know, the Moynihan Report, the 1960s, um, the welfare programs. But for me, you know, I like to talk about the aspect of feminism and the popularity of it, because around that time you have the women's movement, um, you know, women went to, into the workforce, things of that nature. And it, to me, it just feels like this clash of the two. You know, the, the welfare programs, um, how do you excel? You know, it, it's like a, it's a weird kind of dynamic. More women, uh, more black women who are entering college, um, the feminist ideology becoming more and more normalized. And for me, the, the feminism aspect became the rationality for single parenthood, you know, because if she's a single mother raising two kids by herself, she's strong, independent, right? No one asks questions, how does she end up this way? You know, and I, <clears throat> I use my mother as an example because I love my mother and you criticize people you love, but my mother is a single mother with two kids, not because the man left her to, to, um, to suffer or anything of that nature. My mother never wanted to get married and she had two kids with a married man. That's the reality of the situation, and that happens far more often than people think. And so, are, am I only allowed to say, deadbeat father, or am I allowed to ask questions of my own mother, who I love, to ask, why would you bring us up in that situation? Why would you, why would you do that? And I think the concepts of feminism prevents us from asking these questions because then it's misogyny. She can do whatever she wants with her body. She can have as many children as she wants. She can have as many abortions as she wants. She can do whatever she wants. That's the part of the, fem the feminism that exists within the black communities. You're not allowed to criticize black women, even if it's coming from a place of love and care. Let's say from a dating aspect, if you're a black man and, and you're dating a black woman, you say, hey, I like it when you do this, or I don't like it when you do this. Don't tell me what to do. And that's the response. Then how do, how do we progress forward from here? Yeah, I can tell you love your mother and you respect her decisions. And at the same time, you don't necessarily have to agree with them. And these are all, this is a completely acceptable <laughs> package to have, right? You know, you have a, element again and I'm going to go back to the book talking about forgiveness you have this great great MLK quote about forgiveness in the book mm -hmm. and um, and but but you make a point of explaining that it's forgiveness and accountability and this is something I've been thinking about lately a lot right. because you know everything that we've gone through in our society even the last few years uh, with COVID and so forth you know we're going to need a lot of forgiveness yeah. <laughs> to get through it and at the same time, we're going to need a lot of accountability, too. You kind of need both. And they're not actually mutually exclusive. And some people think they are. Mm -hmm. And you address this. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. That, and it actually reminds me of that article that went out, uh, I forget the publication, that was talking about you know, amnesty. 
And I was like... Yeah, the Atlantic, I think. Oh, the yeah. Atlantic. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah of course yeah. it was the Atlantic. Um, <laughs> but they were talking about amnesty. And, and I, you know, I understand where they were coming from. Uh, but at the same time, it made my blood boil. Because I know of all the things that the pandemic affected just me personally and the people I care about and many more people in even worse ways. And when you advocate for amnesty or forgiveness and there's no accountability, to me, that's just a, a shortcut so you don't feel guilty. And to me, that's an insult. You know, that's like your get out of jail free card. And I think that's how you piss off a lot of people. And for sure, that pissed me off. I even wrote an article about it. You get no amnesty. You know, these are the same people who advocated for my father-in-law to get the booster a second time and die two weeks later. And I'm supposed to just forgive them and move on, and they never apologize for it? Not even a, hey, we were wrong about this. Or even worse, they give us a, hey, we were wrong about this. But we were all wrong, right? Weren't we all just wrong about this? No, we weren't. A good amount of people were saying, hey, we should ask some questions about these things. How does this make sense? When my wife is forced to get a shot because of her employer or she loses her job and she didn't want to get it, I have a problem with that. That affects me. When I'm sitting in my, in my job and waiting for OSHA, uh, the OSHA decision to come down from the Supreme Court, that affects me, right? That was stressful because if they did accept it, all the aggravation I would have to go through, for what reason? You offer a number of prescriptions. Yeah, there's a, a bunch of solution chapters uh, at the end of my book because I didn't want it to be a book of just complaining and moving on. I wanted to offer some sort of idea of what we can do. So, um, you know, proper family planning, that's part of it. But the, the other thing that I think is just a general, a general good strategy moving forward is just finding commonality with people. Um, you know, in, in the book, I talk about a, um, a white 70-year-old man who's a veteran. Um, on the surface, we have nothing in common, right? But when I started talking to him, we share similar type of trauma as kids. You know, he doesn't even know who his father is. Um, my father neglected us. And he was lost as well you know, traveled from different countries, entered the military because he had no idea what to do with himself. You know, he was that lost boy. Um, main difference between us is that he self-medicated with, with drinking and he wasn't as good of a father that he, as he wanted to be. And we found commonality between it and we would discuss these things. And, you know, I, I actually advocated for him to try to reconnect with his children, you know, because he had given up because he said they hate him, they don't want to talk to him. Uh, for some of them. And uh, last time I spoke with him, he was able to reconnect with, with one of his kids. Um, and, and he's trying. Um, and, and unfortunately, he's dealing with cancer right now as well. Um, so, you know, that friendship meant a lot to me. And I met him on the internet. Uh, and, and actually, by coincidence, I was able to meet him in person as well. Um, and that was, that was a, a cool day. Um, but I have, I have a deep connection for him because he's one of the, the rare people in my life that believed in me. This is before my book even came out. I would share with him 
you know, excerpts from the book. And he says, this book is going to be a game changer. It was very hard to come by. You know, there's very few people in my life that I felt truly believe in me. My wife is one of those people. He's one of those people as well. But if I didn't look for commonality with him, I wouldn't have had that relationship with him and that support from him. And, you know, spending nine months writing a book, you know, you need all the motivation you can get, especially when you've never done it before. So he's one of the people that I, I really thank for it. But because we're a different age range and look different and come from different places, you know, that's supposed to be the thing that stops us when it doesn't have to be. If you're on the right, find commonality somewhere with someone on the left, right? Because they're not all evil. <laughs> you know, some of them, uh, you might not agree with certain things, but like maybe they're just good people and they just have different value sets than you. It doesn't necessarily make it a bad thing. It's just different. We're all human. We all have issues. We all have a story. We all have a struggle. And I think, I think we have to lose our ego when it comes to that. I think there's too much ego in believing that me, being black, I, I only am the one who's had some sort of struggle and issues. Like, not everybody has a struggle and issue. It just looks different. That's all. So as we finish, um, you're not just the author of a book. You've got a substack. You, of course, you write prolifically for various publications. Uh, Wrong Speak is your trade name, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so just let me know where, what people will find and where they can find it. Yeah, uh, definitely they can find me on Twitter. You know, I'm, I'm very active on there, uh, at Wrong underscore Speak. Um, but I also have uh, Wrong Speak Publishing, um, where we're advocating for free speech, uh, what I like to say, free speech with intellectual thought, um, and just getting people who are just regular people to speak freely. Um, you know, we respect anonymity, but we're encouraging them to use their name, their face. Uh, and, and I've been successfully able to convert some people over to that side. Um, and just be, uh, I don't even want to say be brave, but just don't be scared. Um, and, and put themselves out there. Um, so definitely the people can follow me um, and what I'm trying to do with Wrong Speak, uh, the blog, and, and we're trying to also go more so into the book publishing, um, working on a, a book for a, another author, first time author, um, and help him, help him grow as well. Um, so I'm, I'm all over the place and I'm constantly busy in, in a great way. Thank you for this. Uh, Adam Coleman, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you all for joining Adam Coleman and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. His book again is Black Victim to Black Victor.